put one in your hand. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We, finish, we finally finished chapter 1 uh, this morning. But if you need a Bible, raise your hand. It should be marked already for the first chapter, so you don't have to hunt for it. But uh, we're going to read the last four verses, uh, actually five, 19, 20, 21, 22, and 23. So starting with uh, verse 19, if your Bibles are open, Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power? toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things and to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all and in all. Let's pray again. Lord, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you'd speak to us, your children. If anyone here is not yet a child of God, that today they would turn to you and find life. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Last week, we looked at the word hope. Remember? The, that God wants to fill us with hope. And remember, if you took notes or if you didn't take notes and you remember, if you don't remember anything about hope, remember its meaning is a joyful expectation. A joyful expectation. Not man... I hope it doesn't rain next Sunday like we talked about. But the joyful expectation when it comes to like heaven or the promise of Jesus, you would say, I know that such and so is going to happen, right? That's a different level of hope. We looked at this level of hope of that Jesus says the things that he gives us hope for, we don't have to wonder, will they come true? We know they will come true, and we set our eyes on that future hope. Right? If God said to Abraham, you will have a son, he can say, I look forward to having a son. We have the hope of knowing we will have a son, and finally Isaac came. But hope inspires us. We need hope to inspire us. It increases our faith, but the power of Christ propels us. Does that make sense? Hope inspires us, but the power of Christ propels us forward. It's the hope that we fix on, but then the power of God propels us forward. Do we need hope, or do we need power? Yes. It's a statement I say a lot when it comes to scriptural things. Yes. It's like saying, do I need food, or do I need water? We need both. And Jesus wants to give us power. Do you believe that? Yes. He wants to give us power. I hope that we want his power. I hope that we desire his power. Uh, not for ourselves or our glory, but for the necessity of glorifying him. We need his power. We want to look at three things this morning. This is my typical custom, not always, but and the first, if you're taking notes, is found in verse 19, what I've titled the supply. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us? Toward us. In other words, this power is not power that God is holding and refusing to give to us, but rather this power is coming to us, or God desires to give it to us. How many Christians walk in power? You ever met Christians that truly walk in power? I have. And they're unmistakable. I mean, you don't have to be around them for a couple of minutes, and you're like, this person walks. Now, by the way, if they walk in power, they also walk in hope, to look, to look back week to last week. If they walk in hope, they also walk in joy. 
If they walk in joy, they also walk in peace. It's not that they're perfect. I'm not saying that. But there's a power that exudes from their life. How many Christians walk in power? Far less than should be the case. Far, far less than should be the case. Do we believe we can walk in power? I mean, do you believe that intellectually, or do you believe that from a faith in your heart? Yeah, I I suppose it's possible to walk in power. I suppose that, uh, yeah, I think uh, Charles Stanley could. Yeah, I think uh, Joe Foch could. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that uh, the Apostle Paul was able to, but I don't think the vast majority of Christians could ever walk in power. We might think that. But anyone that follows Christ can walk in power. Are we okay with an absence of power? Well, I'd say many Christians are perfectly fine with an absence of power. They may not, they may not ever verbalize that. They might ever say, hey, God, I am totally fine with no power in my life. But daily, their decisions and the walk of their life says, I am totally okay with no power. Just make sure I stay in an area that will never rock my boat. Because you don't need power if, you know, there's no power needed if you don't have to lift anything. Right? You don't need any power if there's nothing to overcome. You don't need any power if everything is cushy pillows all around. No power needed. But you've got to go through some tough situations. You know, if you're in the military and you're in a battle, you're going to need some power. You need some backup. It's not that there's no availability of power to us as believers. The power of Christ is limitless. Do we all agree with that? Amen. Limitless. The power of God is beyond our comprehension. All you have to do is study the galaxy a little bit, and you'd see the power of God. You see the screen, uh, just a single lightning bolt. The power and just these, according to the book of Job, are the mere edges of God's ways. Just a whisper of what his power is. But his power is limited. It's available to all who are in Christ. The disciples said to themselves, you remember if you've read this in the Gospels, they said, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? I mean, wouldn't it be nice to be able to just tell a thunderstorm, leave because we don't want rain here today? Hey, our kids have a soccer game. It's going to be canceled. Leave, I say. But Jesus could do that. He could walk on water. He could tell the storms to be still instantaneously to go from hurricane force conditions to complete stillness. The disciples said, who can do this? He turned water into wine. He gave sight to the blind. He fed thousands from a meal made for one. He cast out demons. Matter of fact, the demons were petrified of him. He healed entire multitudes. And he did all this with his infinite power. But he also gave a measure of his powers to his disciples, didn't he? Gave them power. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, write this passage down. In Luke chapter 9, verse 1, it said, Then he called his 12 together, his 12 disciples together, and gave them what? Power and authority over all demons to cure diseases. He gave them power. They did not have this power. He gave them this power. They couldn't conjure up this power. He gave them this power. And although he may never give you or me the power to cure diseases, because if I had that power, I'd be at Johnson Willis this morning, walking the halls, healing everybody there. He may not ever give us the power to cure diseases or to go into a city and cast out every demonic force in a city. The Lord knows that's needed too. But what he did for the disciples was a foreshadow of what he would give to the church. And the church is you and me. What he did for the disciples was a foreshadow of what he would give to the church. And what is that? Well, it would be all the power that we need to do whatever we're going to encounter in life. All the power we would need to, 
to go through the things in life. Do we believe that? Do we believe that Jesus, do we believe that the same power, hear this out, do we believe that the same power that Jesus displayed and conferred on the disciples or the apostles is available in our lives? The same power is available to us. Do we believe that? Now, not to do miracles, as some of the miracles were only for the apostolic work of laying the foundation of the church. Understand that. I'm not saying that God can't do the same exact miracles today. He absolutely can. And I'm not saying he hasn't done some of them. In some cases, he has. But for the vast majority of the last 2,000 years, understand that the early laying of the foundation of the church, the apostolic miracles were given to set the foundation. And we may not have miracle working power, but Jesus gave us power for our lives to be a miracle. For our lives to be a miracle. A miracle of grace in what way? Well, a miracle of grace in and going forward with his plan and his will in our life. I don't know about you, but I need God's miracle working power to fulfill his will and plan for my life. I don't have the ability to fulfill it. If I had, if it was just, if it was just me, I never would have become a pastor. I can tell, and I don't, I don't say that joking. I don't say that, you know, just, oh, that's just everyone, it's anyone that would say that. It's just kind of for effect. No, I can assure you, God's power did not say, I can propel you forward. No way would I have become a pastor. I would have said, no, something else. Just wouldn't happen. At least for, I can speak for me, but you have your own things in life that God says, you must go forward and fulfill my will and your plan, and you're going to need his miracle working power in your life to do it. Amen. Otherwise, you might have given up a long time ago. We need his power in the face of our failures, don't we? You, by the way, you can learn a lot from failure. In fact, you learn more from failure than you ever do from success. So don't, don't let failure ruin you. Let it renew you. You can, the power of God will take us through our failures. It'll take us through our sin nature, which is incredibly strong. Wouldn't you agree? The day you and I stop being selfish is the day we finally enter into heaven, right? The power of God will take us through our sin nature. It'll take us through our temptations. Remember Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness. Satan tried to tempt him. The power of God, he could not be. It'll take us through opposition. We're going to have opposition. We're going to have opposition from people. We're going to have opposition uh, from situations. It'll take us through doubts. Do you ever have any doubts? I'm having one right now. You know, that happens. Take us through our doubts. Jesus told us, don't doubt, believe. It'll take us through fears. Fears are real. They may be irrational, but they still feel real, don't they? It'll take us through, his power is greater than our fear. I love when Jesus said, fear not, little flock. That's the way. You know, he speaks to the whole world, and the whole world to him is little flock. The whole church, I mean. I'm speaking of the body of Christ. Fear not, little flock. The church thinks sometimes it's so strong. You know, you see, you see uh, you know, some brand new book that hits the shelves. And it's kind of overly confident in, you know, our abilities. Little flock, fear not. His power, not ours. Uh, fear to overcome discouragements. I mean, power to overcome discouragements. Power to overcome those discouraging times in life, and there's going to be some. How about this? Power to overcome distractions. You ever feel distracted? I believe one of the major attacks of the enemy right now in our times is distraction. People cannot stay focused on anything. And we're not immune as the body of Christ. We're getting constantly bombarded with distractions, and we have to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. And when we do, there's a power there. The power of discipline is a good thing. I didn't say legalism, discipline. The power of going through our shortcomings. Well, we got a lot of shortcomings. God uses people with shortcomings to accomplish great things. David shouldn't have been able to beat Goliath. He had a lot of shortcomings. God said, I don't care about that. 
I care about your yieldedness. Power to go through expectations. You cannot live by everybody else's expectations. Everyone will put expectations on you in life. Let God's expectations be the ones you listen to. Because if you listen to God's expectations, you will make the right decisions on the expectations that matter everywhere else. Power over our weaknesses. We have a lot of weaknesses, don't we? If we were honest, we have more weaknesses than strengths. True? If we were really honest, we have more weaknesses than we do strength. The strengths are valuable when they're under the control of the Spirit, but we still have more weaknesses than strengths. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do how much? That's pretty low, isn't it? Nothing. Power through our illnesses. Some of you have chronic illnesses. You have issues and physical conditions, and some people don't even know about it but you. But God has power to take you through those things. And I, I preached for nine months with neck pain that my doctor said, I don't even know how you stood. I said, it was God. It was an opportunity. I said, I know it was the Lord. I didn't even miss a single Sunday in the pulpit before I had neck surgery in 2009, and I know it was the Lord. I didn't even feel like getting out of the bed, much less preaching. And it was the Lord all the time. He can actually take us by his power through our illnesses. How about through setbacks? They're not necessarily failures. Some setbacks aren't your fault. They just happen in life because it's an imperfect sin world, and we have setbacks. It's like you didn't do it. People, someone's house burned down. They didn't do that. It just happened. I remember when we lived in Charlotte, a lightning bolt hit a house down, burned it to the ground. That's a setback, isn't it? It's not a failure. It's a setback. You know, we've had people that've gotten automobile accidents and things like that. These are setbacks. These are difficult things. But these are just some of the obstacles in life that God gives us the power to go through. Do you believe that? And this doesn't, this doesn't even necessarily include the very specific supernatural attacks of Satan. We haven't even gotten into that piece, the fact that there are supernatural attacks that come directly from the enemy our way. Jesus said to Peter, Satan desires to sift you as wheat. Job, Satan goes up, I want to test Job. We know that those were specific. They were not accidental. Satan really comes after individuals. But God gives us the power to stand. Jesus said, I've prayed for you that your faith wouldn't fail. Isn't that great to know that Jesus has prayed for us too? That our faith wouldn't fail? If you have real faith, it won't fail. It'll fall a few times, but it won't fail. There's a difference. Especially, by the way, the attacks of Satan especially come when we're committed to walking in surrender and submission to the Holy Spirit. You know, Satan does not bother the lukewarm believer. So some believers say, well, that's where I need to stay. Well, that won't work either, because whom the Lord loves, he chastens. <laughs> so it's better, would you rather be under God's power or Satan leaving you alone? Well, when you think about it like this, God's power is so much greater than Satan, it shouldn't be in a decision, but we're looking at it from human terms. God's power it far exceeds Satan's abilities. Always go with the power of God and the will of God. So would we agree that we need some power that's outside of ourselves? Well, of course. Just as we need, uh, we all need oxygen, but we can't create oxygen, Right? You've been breathing oxygen all this time, and not a single one of you said, well, I need to make sure I create some oxygen for this service. I'm going to need it. You know that's supplied by God. And even the unsaved world is getting oxygen supplied by God. That comes from him. We don't create it. We receive it. It's outside of ourselves. We can only thank God for it. And we need the power that Jesus alone provides. We know that we're helpless without him. But what is the key here in verse 19? What is the key? He says, and with what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who, what? Believe. What is believe? Well, believe is faith. Believe is I say, I know that what God said is true. I trust in it. I stand on it. I believe and act upon it. Real faith and genuine belief applies what it is we say we believe. Smith Wigglesworth said, I am not moved by what I see. I am not moved by what I feel. 
I am moved only by what I believe. You can see it, you can look at it, you can intellectually understand it, but when we actually believe it, it propels us forward. John Stuart Mill said, one person with belief is equal to a force of 99 who only have interest. One person with belief. It doesn't, you know, David was like, it's already mentioned David and Goliath. He was the only one that believed Goliath could be defeated. The only one. Everybody else, shaking in their boots. One person with belief. Paul planted so many churches because he believed in the power of God. He believed that God could reach Greeks. He believed he could reach Romans. He believed he could reach Macedonians. He believed he could reach people in Ephesus, Corinth, Antioch. He believed it. He believed anywhere he went, didn't have a synagogue, false temples. He believed that God could reach them. Do you believe that? Inner city Richmond, suburbs, everywhere else. Well, this person is probably really hard to reach. Hard to reach for you or hard to reach for God? No one's hard to reach for God. The exceeding power is to those that believe and act in obedient faith. Let me say that again. The exceeding power is to those to believe and act in obedient faith. Because faith, not faith, if there's no obedience, the scriptures tell us this. We say, well, I believe that prayer changes things. Well, do you pray? Well, I don't pray, but I do believe it changes things. I mean, it'd be silly to go around telling people prayer changes things and not have a prayer life. But we say prayer changes things, and we do pray. We know that who it changes most is us. By the way, when it changes us, we can plow through circumstances. I don't, mean, I don't say that flippantly. I say that because Jesus said, in this world you will have tribulation. He didn't say he'd remove all the tribulation. He said, but, fear not, I've overcome the world. But the overcomers, we're called to be overcomers. We are called this Christian to be overcomers, but overcomers is by believing and walking forward in faith. And that is only available by who? The Holy Spirit. And through the Holy Spirit and obedience to the Spirit, anyone who by belief has the Holy Spirit can have this power. Turn, you don't have to turn there, but look back to the sixth verse in Ephesians. Remember uh, verse 6, um, Ephesians 1, 6, to the praise and glory of his grace by which he uh, made us accepted in the beloved. Um, and then he goes, on, uh, he goes on to say in verse 13, you, after we've been accepted, you who were, verse 13, sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. We were accepted by God through faith, and then we were given who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that brings the power. Micah 3.8. You might want to write this verse down. Micah 3.8. But truly, I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord. Did you hear that? Micah 3.8. Truly, I'm filled with power by the Spirit of the Lord. There's no power apart from the Spirit. Nobody can say, I am full of power without first saying, I'm full of the Holy Spirit. They go hand in hand. There's no power aside from the Spirit. Romans 15, 13. I love this verse. Paul wrote to the Roman church, Now may the God of hope... Huh, seems like the same author. Well, it is. Uh, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope. What is hope? Joyful expectation. That you may abound in joyful expectation by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the power of the Spirit that you can abound in hope. It's the power of the Spirit that you can have joy. It's the power of the Spirit that we can have peace. And that comes through believing, first for salvation, but then continuing to believe. How many believe we have to have increasing belief even after salvation? Well, yes. We were saved by faith to grow in faith. And as we grow in faith, we grow in the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, verses 5 and 13. For those who live according to the flesh, and you can put in parentheses there, unbelief or powerless. Whenever you see flesh, you can put unbelief or powerless. Those who live according to the flesh or unbelief and powerless set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, you could put in parentheses, belief and power. 
those who live according to power or the Holy Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Verse 13 says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And this is an effervescent living. Jesus said, out of you would flow rivers of living water. Isn't that great? Then when circumstances are tough, you have living water that's coming from heaven, that's coming outside of earth from heaven, that's not... Do you think that God's rivers of living water can be stopped by the circumstances of earth? No. This is how we have persecuted brothers and sisters in jail cells that say, I experienced peace I'd never had before because it's supernatural. But we can have that power ourselves. Now that's the supply. Let's take a look at the surety, which is mentioned in the next verse, in verse 20. Which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. We'll stop right there because the middle of the verse to the end is going to be the last point. This, uh, the surety. How do we know that the power of God is true and every other supposed power is either a letdown, a lost cause, or simply a lie? All the other supposed powers are not actually power. Satan is a liar and the father of lies, right? He, he had Adam and Eve convinced that he had power equal to God. Did he? No. It was a lie. He's always trying to convince people that his alternative power is actually equal and just as life-fulfilling and just as able to get you through as anything else. But all these other supposed powers will fail. Only Jesus walked out of the grave on his own. Next week we celebrate the resurrection. There's a little preview here, right? Only Jesus walked out of the grave on, on his own. Now, because of him, a few people did walk out of the grave that he said, come forth, Lazarus. He was already showing his power over death before he raised himself from the dead, he was already showing he had the power over death. His own resurrection was the culmination of, he didn't have one of the disciples calling him out of the grave. He walked himself out, which Muhammad's never done, Buddha's never done, Confucius has never done, and none of the other world leaders and dictators, they've all died and their empires are gone. He displayed this great power of walking out of the grave, never to die again, but he then ascended up into heaven. And no one else, we've, no one else has ever just ascended themselves right up into the clouds. In a few weeks, I don't know when, I, I'm look, maybe um, I'm looking on a Wednesday night, I'm going to do a Wednesday night topical message on the clouds and the Bible. So I'll give you advanced opportunity. If you care about that, I've been studying it. There's so much God uses the clouds to speak of his glory and his power and everything else. But Jesus ascended up into the clouds. No one else, this isn't something others did either. His resurrection, only Jesus, has the power over death. And that's good to know because death is a scary thing, isn't it? Even Christians still get afraid of death. Anyone ever tells you, if once you're saved, you'll never fear death. That's not true. Christians will sometimes fear it as well. Martin Luther talked about this. It's been, you know, one of the reasons why we, we because we actually know the, the depth of evil and sin. And so we start to understand what we deserve, and God has to remind us, grace, 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 grace. But Jesus has the power over death. He displayed this by raising others and ultimately by raising his own body. The resurrection brothers and sisters, is the linchpin of the power of God. It's the linchpin of God's power. Only he did it. And it's the guarantee, it's not just the linchpin of his power, but it's the guarantee of his power available through the same resurrection by belief and by faith. It's through the resurrection of Jesus that this power comes to us by faith, by believing. The Bible tells us Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. What does that mean? Well, if he's the first fruits, that means there's other fruits of the resurrection. Who is that? Us. He's the first fruits of the resurrection, but all who are in him come after him into his resurrection. We're born into his resurrection. 
The same resurrection that we enter into, he accomplished, but we enter into it by belief and faith. Jesus did not enter into his resurrection by belief and faith. He had full power. He didn't have to have faith. He was perfect faith. We have to exercise faith, and we enter into his resurrection. He's the first fruits. We come in as part of that resurrection. His resurrection completes the redemption that makes this power to us possible. If there is no resurrection, there's no power available to us. Amen? There's no power available if there's not a resurrection. He said, after I depart, I'll send the helper. The resurrection had to come first. Then, he goes, when I defeat and show forth my power, I'll send forth the power from on high, which is the Holy Spirit, to come down to us. And he promised this before he went to the cross. And then after the resurrection, before he ascended up into the clouds, right there in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, it's one of my favorite verses, Acts 1, 8. It should be one of your favorite verses. If it's not, starting today, you can be one of your favorite verses too. Jesus would love it if it's one of your favorite verses. I can say that unequivocally. I'll say that again. Jesus would love if everybody... Every single person in the church loved Acts 1.8, because here's what it says. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, in Chesterfield, in the city of Richmond. It doesn't say that, but it's inferred. Because it says into the end of the earth, and we're part of the end of the earth. We're in there. Your zip code's in there. Your city's in there. Your neighborhood's in there. Any place, says the end of the earth, that covers everything. His resurrection guarantees those that believe an abiding power. Because most power fades. You ever have your cell phone last forever? Mm -mm. Mm-mm. It's not an abiding power. It has to be... But the Holy Spirit never runs out of power. It's an abiding power. It's a drenching power. And, you know, God wants to baptize you individually by the Holy Spirit, but the church he wants to baptize in the Spirit as well, that the power would be upon us individually, but also collectively. It's, now, here's the cool thing. Even with the abiding power, there are bursts of anointing power. Does that make sense? And I don't know how this works, but it's all the way from Genesis to Revelation, where even men that were filled with the Spirit got hyper-filled, if you will, where the Spirit comes upon them And in a moment, men that were already full of joy and full of peace and full of the power of God were anointed for a special moment. That's what, by the way, when a real revival comes, you'll see people truly anointed for that. But nevertheless, we have the surety of this power now, not just in revival seasons, but at all times. The last thing we want to look at this morning in the last few verses here in the middle of, uh, as well as the middle of verse uh, 20. In the middle of verse 20, it picks up and it says, Not only did he raise him from the dead, but seated him, so God sat the Son, he being, uh, he being God, and seated him, him being Christ, at his, back to the Father, right hand, in the heavenly places, far above principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age which is to come, and put all things under his feet, and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, to the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, Jesus, when he ascended back into heaven, with this great power uh, visible now, he sat at the right hand of God. Now, this is significant because the right hand, uh, that means in the, in the scriptural context and in the, time, the, the ancient times there uh, with kings and empires, to be seated at the right hand was a place of favor, It was a place of honor and a seat of victory. Do you think Jesus sat down with honor? Oh, yeah. Favor, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. Victory, he had victoriously defeated sin, Satan, and the grave. If that doesn't apply for right-hand seating, I don't know what does. Right? This is the apex of right-hand seating. Jesus is the apex of right hand of God. He's seated too. This is significant as well. Jesus is seated. You know when a king sits, he's in total control. 
He ain't worried. He's sovereign. You and I run around fluttering, worried, distressed. He's seated on his throne. When the more we see him seated on the throne, the more our souls will rest. The more we'll be at peace. The more we'll know he's already conquered. He's already got victory. He already has what you need for today, tonight, tomorrow, next week, and the year after. This week, as I mentioned earlier, it's Passover week. It's the week that Jesus was examined as the Lamb of God. He was examined, uh, and then just days later, he would die as the sacrificial lamb, slain for the sins of the world. And he entered Jerusalem on Lamb Selection Day. Did you know that? So uh, in Lamb Selection Day, which was five days before the Passover meal, each Jewish family, as well as the high priest that was going to sacrifice the one lamb uh, in the temple, but everyone else had to select their own lamb as well, for the Passover, and everyone had to select a lamb just as it was told way back to Moses in Exodus that they had to select a spotless lamb without blemish. And Jesus entered on lamb selection day. He was God's selection as the spotless lamb slain before the foundation of the earth as everybody else was selecting their lambs. But even as he humbled himself unto death of, uh, in the death of crucifixion, even as he willfully endured torture, mocking, spitting, shame. He was displaying, get this, brothers and sisters, even as he was enduring all of that, he was displaying a power and submitting to the cross that is simply breathtaking. If you've never taken the time to ponder it, use this coming week to ponder it. His submitting to this is powerful in and of itself. Jesus displayed a power over the flesh that was the culmination of a 33-year walk of absolute perfection and self-denial. 33-year walk of absolute, not a single mistake, and self-denial all the way to the cross. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? You and I struggle for a few days of self-denial. Don't we? And God loves us anyway. But we struggle for just a few days of self-denial. 33 years of self-denial. And and Jesus had the power over the flesh and the wants of the flesh, and yet he had power to do anything. But the power over that flesh is so visibly relatable to us because we get dominated by the flesh and he dominated the flesh. This is a power that is much easier to see in hindsight, his laying down his life that's powerful. It's much easier to see it now in hindsight than it was 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. See, if you were there and I was there, it seemed to people there that day, it seemed to people that Jesus was weak and powerless can't even defend himself from getting whipped and beaten. He can't even take himself off the cross. If you're really the Son of God, come down from there. Where's your power? It seemed to them that he was powerless. And yet, to lay down his life, the creator of heaven and earth was far from powerless. It was powerful. The first time I thought, had this thought, I know it was from the Holy Spirit because I had no verse in mind. I thought, I said, man, that's got to be as powerful as the resurrection. I was like, am I just making this up? And a little bit later, God took me back to a verse that I knew, but my mental block had blocked out, and God had purposely wanted me to hear from the Spirit that this is just as powerful as the resurrection, but did you know Jesus said it explicitly? He did. He makes this point clear when he spoke of his life and then his willingness to lay down his life and die. In John 10, 18, Jesus gives us these words, and I'm telling you, The first couple times I had this thought, I had forgotten about the verse, but Jesus says in John 10, 18, no one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of myself. And I have power to lay it down. Did you hear that? I have power to lay it down. It takes great power to do what he did, to lay it down. And he said, I have power to take it up again. Do you realize he called them co-equal? The power to lay it down and the power to raise it up. He didn't say that one was greater than the other. He said both took supernatural, dunamos power. This I command I've received from my Father. 
Yet even as he submits himself, even as there in Jerusalem, submitting himself as the sacrificial lamb, he reminds some of those that were there that day that the type of power that they would recognize as power, because there is a power that people think of as power, laying down on a cross, the Muslim faith thinks that's not power at all. What kind of God would die? The Greeks didn't like it either, right? Yet it was great power to lay down his life. But the kind of power that was, people would recognize, Jesus even said to them, was available to him with a single word. But he also said that that would be later visible in due time. The power we think of as power, he said, oh, that kind of power, you'll see that too in due time. He said to Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Peter wanted to take a sword and take off more than just an ear, of Malchus, uh, the, the high priest uh, servant there. He said the night of his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verses 53 and 54, do you think that I cannot pray to my Father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the Scriptures be fulfilled? Is what he asked next to Peter. He goes, how are the Scriptures going to be fulfilled if I call 12 legions of angels, which I certainly can do? Which, by the way, he could have called more than 12 legions. That was just a number. And there might be some significance to the 12 and all that stuff. I don't have time to get into that. But he was using a Roman military term, which means that he could have called more than 61,000 angels. Now, one angel could wipe out the earth anyway. You need to call 61,000 or 600,000 or 6 million. But the point is, Jesus could have simply uttered a word. One word he could have said, come. And they would have roared to his scene. Isn't that amazing? He said, all I did give us the word. And the angels will fly faster than the speed of light and consume his adversaries. And Jesus speaking to the high priest, same night, just a little bit later, after his arrest. So that was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells Peter, I could have called 12 legions. After his arrest, Matthew 26, verse 64, he says to the high priest, Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's a preview of the cloud study. I had forgotten that was even in there. But that is a little, little snippet preview there. He says, you'll see me coming with power. By the way, he said this to the men that were killing him. Everyone that says, I need to see God's power, and then I'll believe, well, you don't want to wait till you see that power. You want to receive the dying to the cross power, then you get to see the other power from a totally different vantage point. You don't want to be underneath looking up at this coming. And lastly, he said to the Roman governor, Pilate, just before his death sentence in John 19.11, he says to Pilate, who Pilate was really weirded out, really knew he was guilty, and knew that Jesus was from another world. He knew it. And he said to Pilate, he said, you could have no power at all against me unless it had not been given you from above. Jesus made it clear, even at his death, even as he was laying down with great power, he verbalized, for those of you looking for the other kind of power, that's coming. But that's not what I'm going to show you here in Jerusalem, Passover 2,000 years ago. And even as Jesus is standing there as a humble lamb, he reminds the rulers that he retains all power, and he will someday display it in great glory and great majesty. The lamb really will return as a powerful lion. He really is the lion of the tribe of Judah. The suffering servant will return as the triumphant king of kings. And by the way, it says right here, he put all things under his feet. He's already put all things under his feet. He already has all authority. And why it's so foolish for people to be the god of their own lives, which is a mirage. It's a, it's, it's, it's a delusion. You're not really the god of your own life. And it's a delusion when churches make pastors the god of the church. And they make ministries bigger than Jesus. It's a delusion. He's the head of the church. He's put all things under your feet. And especially as Christians, that when Christians start to kind of say, I'm going to retake control of my life again. I, I've, 
I gave it to God for a while. This word principalities in the Greek, it can mean leader, the beginning, angels, demons. It means all these things, this word principalities. The word power, overall power, it can mean physical power, mental power, authority, and government. And this word uh, dominion, in the Greek it means lordship. So he has power over the angelic realm. He has power over all rulers, all kingdoms, and all lordship. Lord of lords, king of kings. He has authority over all authorities, all created things, all created beings, all who ever lived, it says, not only now, but in the age in which it's come, all who ever lived, all who ever will live, all past, all present, all future and eternity. In his earthly ministry, Jesus subjected himself. Get this, this is, very, this is doctrinally very important. In his earthly ministry, Jesus subjected who? Himself. The coming kingdom, he subjects everything else. Does that make sense? He subjected himself to provide salvation, but he's not subjecting himself in the future. He's subjecting everyone else. That's why it says, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. In subjection, in bowing down, in acquiescing to his power. He will take his rightful role. Let's look at the future for just a second, and we're going to come to a close. We only got a couple minutes left here. Turn with me quickly to Revelation. Revelation chapter 19. Gives you an idea of what subjection looks like when Jesus causes everything to fall under his subjection. Because not everyone willingly surrenders. Again, if he comes back as a king... The first time he came on a little foal of a donkey, right? Second time, a ruler, white horse, same as the Roman leaders would do. Revelation 19, verse 11. Now I saw heaven open, John seeing this scene, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on it was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. You think God values the Bible? <laughs> this is one of Jesus' primary names here, the Word of God. And in the armies in heaven followed him, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, and followed him on white horses. If you've never ridden a horse and you're saved, you're going to finally get your horse. You won't have to worry about being afraid of the horse or how to ride a horse. It's all going to work. And out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. That is subjection. Everyone will bow to his authority. He himself treads the winepress, the fierceness of wrath. These are those that are in rebellion to God, the Antichrist, and everybody else. And he has a name... And on his robe, I'm sorry, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John says, this is what I saw. Everything Pilate was wondering about him, there it is. Everything the high priests were wondering about him, if you really are, there it is. But you don't want to be waiting till then to say, now I believe. Those who believe receive the gracious power of God today. You know these words, but I haven't read them. I don't think I've ever read them from the pulpit. I'm going to read them. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem. and Crown him Lord of all. Let every kindred, every tribe on this terrestrial ball, to him all majesty ascribe and crown him Lord of all. Oh, that with yonder sacred throng we at his feet may fall, we'll join the everlasting song and crown him Lord of all. Everything subjected. That's why we as a church, we have to stay under the lordship of Jesus. Amen. We're not following the methods of man. There's no power there. Do you realize that? 
There's only power when we follow what he says. If you're here today and you've never put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you need the power of his, of his death and resurrection to save you from sin, save you from the judgment to come. He has the power to radically change your life. We don't have the power to change ourselves. People have been trying to fix themselves forever. He has the power to change us, fix us, cure us, transform us, new creations. If you're here and you know Christ, and maybe you no longer walk in power. Maybe there was a time you did walk in power. Maybe you've traded the power of Christ for the pseudo-power of the American dream. It's not real. It's not genuine power. It can be dissolved in a New York minute. So, well, I don't know if that's possible. Ask the ancient Romans. Everybody's come and gone that believed in pseudo-power. Maybe you trust now in the perceived power of a bank account or your abilities or a career. Do you realize there's like a thousand ways God could disrupt any one of those things? I mean, I could start rattling off real scenarios that have happened to real people, and you would say, I don't think that's going to happen to me. That just happens to other people. Maybe a relationship is a power in your life, or whatever it is. There's nothing wrong with those things in and of them things, but if they're on the throne, we're powerless. And frankly, like I said, Jesus can remove any of them at any moment he wants. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to deny ourselves, don't we? We need the power uh, of God to live out the will of God. We need the power of the Holy Spirit to push through the many trials and difficulties and obstacles in life. Not just push through them, but with joy exceedingly and hope and expectation. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your everlasting power given by your Holy Spirit. Lord, we truly do in our hearts crown you Lord of all. And Lord, I, my prayer is if anyone here doesn't know you as Lord, that they would give their lives to you. And those that know you as Lord would resubmit and surrender as Lord, and we would all receive the power of the Holy Spirit, for we need it in these days far more than we understand. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.